Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks and streamers but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society, and this is the after show for Trial, featuring my interview with Matteo Borghese and Rob Turbovsky. Hopefully you all have listened to the table read of this incredibly funny show. And if you did, I'll give you one big reason to listen to this interview. You will find out who the murderer is. You'll also hear about what they've learned about writing comedy mysteries from this pilot and from three seasons on Only Murders in the Building. Uh, You'll hear about some of the other actors that they considered Uh, that they sort of had in their minds when they were writing the show, how Michael Dukakis contributed to their big break, what it was like being in a room with Mike Judge on their very first job on Silicon Valley, and how being nominated for a writing Emmy feels, you know, so you're prepared when it happens to you. All right, enjoy my interview with Matteo and Rob after a brief message. Hi, I'm Travis McElroy. And I'm Teresa McElroy. And we're the host of Schmanners. We don't believe that etiquette should be used to judge other people. No, on Schmanners, we see etiquette as a way to navigate social situations with confidence. So if that sounds like something you're into, join us every Friday on Maximum Fun, wherever you get your podcasts. This was, um, this was such a fun read. I just had such a good time listening to this pilot i hope you guys did too yeah i mean i don't know you never know like if people are gonna like it when you're writing it because it's not like stand-up or sketch which we both used to do and like you have that like immediate gratification of like instead you're just like laboring on these things for like years and years and like (laughs) no idea if you've like missed by a thousand miles you know so like having this like read was like so nice it felt like we suddenly felt i i felt at least like we weren't that wrong (laughs) (laughs) no definitely not i mean it's a it's a great character bradley's a great you know there's a lot of great characters and so many good jokes you know i think you know obviously like Dog President Two and Poochment and and Robo Dad Two Daddery's not included or just all time fake movie titles, it, you know. Uh, and you know, people I talked to that were there just really enjoyed it. So we, you guys, talked a little bit about this coming out of your Mateo. You, um, by the way, can you just say so people know who's who? We just like say your names. Okay, I'm I'm Mateo with this kind of voice that's like a little nasally in this way. I'm Rob Trabowski. I'm the structure voice guy. No, no, no. <laughs> There's a guy who sounds like the jokes guy and sounds like the structure guy. I'm not I'm neither of those. Really. <laughs> um, so, Mateo, you worked at Core TV, and that you were saying was a little bit the inspiration for this. Tell me, tell me more about how this one came about. Yeah, I, you know, like, I guess my job title at the time was like, <laughs> they they made a bunch of documentaries, like true crime. It would be the most popular television network of all time if it like were going still now. Yeah, uh, because all they did was crank out true crime documentaries, and so like my job at the time was researching cases so i had like a google hit every time the phrase bizarre murder showed up (laughs) like (laughs) google would email me the article uh and and so like that was my job was just like i get in in the morning and like scroll through my email and just read all the like darkest shit imaginable um until i found one that like we could make a documentary about but like kind of <clears throat> while I was doing that, you know, you start thinking about <laughs> like, what if it was me? What if like the walls were closing in on me and like, you know, like people were catching on, like thought that I like killed someone and immediately what happens is like all of your secrets just like 
blow up. They all like come out at the same time. And like where everybody's just fascinated by everything you've ever done and they all get blown up. That that seemed to me like a really interesting place to start a pilot. Like someone who like has a lot of secrets to hide and then this thing happens and then they all come out. And um, at, what, at what point do you think let's make him a celebrity? I don't remember if there was um a, a, if there if there was a version without that you know we, we it was sort of all one kind of ongoing conversation you know i was working as an assistant around the time no I, I i that was after that but i before we started writing together or before we got hired for our first job uh which was only about a year before we uh sold the show i had been working as an assistant and you know you get to know other assistants you know and and you sort of glimpse that the that those worlds kind of you know i think that was like the first time i heard about malibu colony you know a special <laughs> moment in a boy's life um and uh so so i think that was in the you know that was in the ether i think you know this whole la thing was was still like new and interesting to us as opposed to oppressive and sad and old you know <laughs> so you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but you were an assistant to like what kind of person? Uh, I was listening to a comedy person um, who is nothing like this character at all. Um, but, you know, I, I, it got, I got to thinking about those kinds of people. And I, and I love stand-up. I've always loved like comedians and particularly, you know, because my tastes run really old, you know, guys who are like, who are Bradley's generation, you know? So it seemed like a really funny, you know, next iteration of like the Larry Sanders kind of thing, you know, where you had, or like Albert Brooks, I think, you know, was would be like your dream sort of thing because he's played himself in a few movies. And so it's like, well, what's like a heightened new version of that, you know? Uh, so that was our dream in 2014 was to sell Comedy Central, home of Key and Peele, and the Amy Schumer show and shows for other people in their thirties, a show starring someone minimum age 70. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about Albert Brooks is, I mean, God, that would be incredible. Like that was, I, it was like, we were like <laughs> Albert Brooks, Gary Shandling, um, you know, the, those kinds of people were and then eventually, you know, I mean, anybody like that, but it's, I think what you learn is, <laughs> It takes, not everyone has that sense of humor about themselves, even a gentle ribbing, let alone mm -hmm. the idea that they're going to play themselves as a murderer, you know, which was the initial um, sort of meta, semi-meta pitch, you know, is like we would try to sell this person on, the character would be called, you know, whoever was playing him, Albert Brooks, Gary Shandling, whatever. Right. So the title would have been The Trial of Albert Brooks. It's right. Or... Yeah. trial for instance yeah. uh and yeah i i think like maybe that's like a mistake that kind of younger writers are like apt to make i think which is there's a in, like the rules of being an actor and having like an on-screen persona are so intense and are just not something that like i think if you're a comedy writer you necessarily think through when you're just trying to think of like funny things and like funny jokes and um all that because there's like reasons why these guys want to preserve the image that they have it's it's their meal ticket and if you're like wildly subverting it they might think it's funny or whatever they're like you know but at the same time it could do like real damage to like the the thing that the career that they've spent their entire lives <laughs> you know um so i'm not sure if we like totally grok that at the time but like <laughs> but uh it was something i was thinking in during the table read like well, I see why someone would do this you know i mean how many people did you uh, so you come up with the idea and then you tell me a little bit about just selling it to comedy central like how that went down because it sounds like you're still kind of baby writers at this point I like, think we were you, on. Uh, were you on Silicon Valley? I think it was just after that. 
Silicon Valley was our first show. And then our second show was a this Paul Feig uh, series called Other Space on Yahoo Screen, a service we're all familiar with. Uh, <laughs> and those are really the residuals that have sustained us during the strike, I have to say. <laughs> the Yahoo Screen residuals. Um, and we we um, developed it with Mosaic, which was, uh, you know, also where our we're managed with uh, Sam Hansen uh, was our guy there who really helped us refine the idea. And we had never pitched anything before. And he, you know, was like, well, me- let's set up some low stakes kind of meetings. You know, you won't sell it to these places, but it'd be good just to, you know, what a pitch is like and that sort of thing. And I think we'd had, we had one with Comedy Central and then maybe, um, and then after, with somebody we knew there, sort of, and then we had another one with them, and they bought it, uh, much to our surprise. But it was it was called Bradley Basil. The character was in the pitch. I think we just called him Bradley, but maybe we said we would try to get someone to play him, play himself ultimately. And once it sold, was was it brought to God, who, those people? <laughs> such a great question. Wasn't there? <laughs> That's how we went wrong. Well, we'd heard that um, we'd heard that um, that somebody did mention it to uh, Shandling, who I think was probably in our hearts the first choice. And uh, all we heard was like he that that uh, that he was like, oh, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Which which, by the way, when you're starting out and you hear that this unsourced unproven uh you know allegation that gary shandling thinks one of your ideas is funny that'll get you by a year you know that's enough. that's For a juicy sure. enough little crumb to feast on <laughs> i mean it's not it's not quite as good as if he read it and said that but sure no no he heard, yeah, heard yeah. the idea and liked it's pretty good it's, heard you know. some version of what he wanted to hear about the idea <laughs> loved it. um and then i mean so so it sounds like they weren't really making huge efforts to attach. I think it was, it was, it was, there was, yeah. Then they went down to like, not down to, but I mean, like (laughs) there were other, other people who were, um, who else was, I think like they did try to get it to like um, David Spade or Dana Carvey or somebody like that. Um, Am I forgetting other parts of this journey, Mateo? <laughs> um, no, I think that's like accurate. We went through like a lot. It felt like the '90s SNL cast was like a good place to start. So we uh, we got in there. No Victoria Jackson, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we uh, we got down the list, and it just seemed like it was either I don't know. We didn't get a ton of feedback. I, I just think like. It's one of those things like Comedy Central. I think Rob was right. Like they were just like not that interested in <laughs> potentially putting on like an older comedian, like as a star of a show, you know, at that point. Ultimately what they, and they were very nice and like, you know, we enjoyed developing with them and they had, you know, thoughtful notes about trying to get us to bring it down to earth emotionally, you know, uh, which was correct. I think, you know, one other aspect was they had a show um big time in hollywood florida i think is what it was called and that show they had renewed and their second season or or whatever season they were about to do was going to be a courtroom story Mm. and so you know two courtroom stories is is too many i think they said so convincing the way you said yeah (laughs) yeah makes sense to me um, all right, let's back up a bit because uh, just talk about how you guys like got that first job and how you partnered up. And um, Mateo, I do know that you are, are a fellow uh, alum of the Yale Exit Players. Um, mm-hmm. We met soon after you came out, but I don't know how you guys connected and got your big break. It wasn't through theater sports somehow. <laughs> So we were, uh, we both ended up at USC film school. I had done this job at Core TV. I'd done a lot of sketch at the uh, UCB and stuff. 
uh, at the pit in New York. Um, uh, just, you know, the, that kind of period where you're like working one job and doing your dream job, but really poorly. Like we would, I would do a show like once every two years or something, just cause I was so like exhausted and it was so hard. And finally, like, kind of washed up in film school uh <clears throat> and um that's where i met um my uh life preserver uh Bosque. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, i do remember the first time i saw rob in film school as an acting class for writers which was just awful uh he was wearing sunglasses indoors defend yourself rob that's not true is that true <laughs> okay i should go back to that yeah. Well, you know, an actor's eyes should be mysterious. And I was an actor in that class. Yeah. Um, so we met there uh, and uh, we hit it off, but like we couldn't really write anything together. Um, so we kind of kept in touch and we spent like about, I don't know, like after graduating the first like year trying to like do things separately. And then I just asked him, like, what are you doing? Do you want to work on something together? And uh, he had um, reached a low. So I was in luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we wrote a screenplay in like six weeks, which it was terrible. But it gave us this like illusion of progress and momentum that we really needed at that point. And then um, we just have been kind of going along since. Um. What happened after that? How did we well, get? We, we were very, very fortunate. Getting and, a coffee um, really quickly. And then... Getting a coffee. All right. <laughs> um, we were, uh, yeah, we wrote that. We wrote like a spec, you know, a pilot, uh, an original pilot about Michael Dukakis. So we had a nice catchy title called I'm with Dukakis. And that got us um, a manager and an agent very fortunately. I mean, I was, so I was working for Judd Apatow and somebody from Judd's office sent it to somebody at mosaic and because it came i know now that this never you know is miraculous you know because i've tried to when i read somebody's script who's looking for a manager and agent and i like it you know i always want to help and i would send it to somebody at you know who i might know or whatever and they're like yeah i'll add it to my big stack of things that have been recommended to me you know but i think because of that constellation of things um you know, they read it and and somebody uh, signed us, you know, we're very, very lucky. And so our manager, our friend, Josh Rudnick, executive producer of, of uh, the Daniels uh, movie. So now he's wow. got, um, you know, <laughs> we're his second favorite pair, I think, I think. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then right after that, or shortly thereafter, Silicon Valley um, was getting going. And, it, you know, it's one of these like, you know, like drawing to an inside straight sort of things. Um, they had been editing that pilot in Judd's building. So I, I just by coincidence, I happened to know Mike Judge's assistant. And then we had some mutual friends who had worked on King of the Hill who recommended us. And, you know, we went through all the meetings and met with Mike and he hired us. And that was our first job. And tell me about what it was like that, that first job. You know, that that's your first time in a writer's room, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, scary, cool, you know, you're there and like Mike, there's Mike Judge, you know, and Alec Berg. And Mike sounds just like, you know, he sounds like a cross between Hank Hill and Butthead, you know? I mean, like, that's the guy who you've been hearing, you know, it was still surreal. Like, the guy who made Office Space is there and he's, we're both eating string cheese, you know? I mean, like, it's, <laughs> it's... <laughs> It was kind of crazy. And, you know, at the same time, it's like you realize what a job it is, you know, like come in every day and just grind on figuring out ideas. You know, you realize very quickly what half a staff writer's salary gets you, you know, it's part of what what the strike is about. Um, But I think we're very fortunate to be there. And how long were you guys there? Uh, the first, just the first season. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, just the first season. And then we were off for a little bit. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's an exciting, I mean, at the time, like, it felt like being on an HBO show, like, that was really different than being on 
like any other type of show. And now that distinction means nothing. Like everything, <laughs> an episode, like premium, whatever that means, like kind of show. But it it felt like, oh my God, we've been like ejected from the absolute bottom of the show business experience. And by that, I mean like going through film school to, <laughs> uh, to this like, like place like that was so kind of exalted in my head at least of like oh my god it's like an hbo show this is so cool and yeah, so it's kind of incredible that that was such a prestige uh brand and it's just been like tossed in the trash like that, that it's just sort of doesn't even barely exist now it's just Part of this big gloop of max with like home shows and like there's it's yeah I, crazy i mean i think it's just as just because there's so much stuff i mean think of how many sh- even in 2013 when we were on that show how many comedy shows did hbo put out a year you know 10 maybe you know and so every one of them felt special um and you know it was like yeah it was it was sort of surreal i mean when we were working on it didn't have a title mike hadn't done anything really i think since extract um and so and there was no sense from for me anyway that it would be this like instant out of the box hit you know you you, there was no i mean we had nothing to compare it to but in the room it just felt like man this is hard you know um and i think i mean i think that on this podcast you have people be candid about this kind of stuff because i assume only writers mostly writers listen to this but i think our our um, lack of experience definitely showed you know we did our best uh but i think the challenge that we're much better at now is understanding that you have to match the voice of the show you know you have to that's really your main job is mateo puts it i think in a great way which is your job is to figure out what's in the showrunner's head you know and it was additionally extra hard because there was only a pilot episode to go yeah. off of, and, and they were going to reshoot some of that. First seasons are hard for that reason. Like it's just hard to completely get voices from one episode. Um, so that's always tough. And then you sold the trial like after it was like after just that year on Silicon Valley. Yeah, we may have been on other space by that point, but okay. not not too long after that. Yeah, I do remember getting some call on the set of Other Space about it. Um, yeah, your life's going to change. You've just sold a pilot for the legal minimum. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy a used car. Yeah, um, one of you can to get. You <laughs> can buy one used, one used car. car to share. Yeah. yeah. So, so what's the so there's Other Space and then. You know, so you've got that Yahoo screens cred now added to the resume. And then what's the next one? Is it, it's always sunny? Is that where you guys land next? Yes. Always sunny. And, yeah. You know, it's funny because we did two other space was a season one, uh, season one and done tragically. And then always sunny we was season 10, I think, mm. you know, so already very different experiences you know the the charm of season ones is that you're all it's new to all of you you know and sometimes when you come in late you know or it might turn out mid run for always sunny season 10 it's like there's a group that knows each other well and you know that that brings its own challenges um the good thing about other space too was that I, I had known paul a little because when i was working at apatow was when they were making bridesmaids so the first time I was ever on a film set was the first day of Bridesmaids. Yeah. Um, and Paul is like extremely nice. And because of that, because of other space, he would kind of throw us other work. So uh, we worked on, he was making uh, the Peanuts film. Uh, he was producing it. So we were working, did a little work on that. And then he brought us to Boston when he was making his Ghostbusters movie. We were on set for a few weeks right after Always Sunny uh, in Boston working on Ghostbusters, which was very cool. Yeah, that had been so cool. Um, and then, you know, you guys are, it's its interesting that Trial is this kind of, you know, a- actor playing themselves. And then 
you've done a few other things in that. I mean, the Ryan Hansen show uh-huh. is a little bit that. Maria Bamford, Lady Dynamite is kind of her. She's she's playing a version of herself. And then ultimately, you know, only murders in the building. Like, was trial like specifically was it the sample that got you those shows? I don't I don't know if it was. Uh I think it was mostly our our Dukakis uh pilot, but I mm. must have sent trial to only murders. It like makes too much sense to send a true crime thing to. Yeah, true. I think our pitch on only murders was like we've written a mystery theoretically, you know, because we did have a loose plan of how that season would unfold. Um, and and who the killer would be. But yeah, it is, and, and it has jokes, you know. I think you're always trying to guess when you submit a sample. Are you gonna are you gonna have one that's really joke have joke heavy, or are, you, are they looking for something that's more about, you know, emotion delivering emotional experiences? Not our thing. The boring. <laughs> send them us. Send them our dullest pilot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it does seem like you guys have kind of been in a, in this realm of, you know, a little. Uh, it's hard to know what the words are. A little bit on the more absurd side, shows like Lady Dynamite, you know, joke heavy. It's not like you've you've not done real time on like a network sitcom. Um, Have you even like gone out for those shows or has it really kind of been like, this is our our lane? There's a few. There's a few that we, uh, you know, knocked on the door of. (laughs) Yeah good sense to smell two weirdos as soon as we showed up. It's, uh, it's funny. You know, I think when you sometimes look at it from the outside, you maybe think there's more agency, like more choice than there really is. You know, I I'm like thrilled with in retrospect, just about everything, you know, like I look at that IMDb and I'm like, you know, I, those are all defensible, you know, like, <laughs> but sure. those were also just about the only ones that came asking for us you know like we have not turned down a lot of jobs you know um especially in tv that's just like the financial reality like you know um but i think we were just a better match for those for those shows and especially now i think the old model if you were a writing team you've sort of had to be on a 22 episode network show to make that work um but those shows don't even exist anymore you know yeah there's so few It is hot in L.A. right now. I know it's hot in a lot of the country. It's too hot to cook. And that's where Factor comes in. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. It can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You're going to save time. You're going to eat well. And you're going to keep up with that healthy lifestyle we're all trying to keep up. Refresh your healthy habits without missing a beat. Choose from 34 plus weekly flavor packed, dietitian approved meals. They're ready to eat in two minutes. You know, if you're too busy running around to think about eating a healthy lunch, you can keep your energy up with lunch to go. These are effortless, wholesome meals like grain bowls, salad toppers. They're ready to eat when you're on the go. They don't need the microwave. They're ready in less than two minutes. They're ready to eat now. This August, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered to your door, ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. And like I said, the lunch to go, ready instantly. I'll tell you some of my favorite Factor meals that I've had lately. Now, these are all vegetarian because that's what I aspire to be, but Factor has options for every diet. I just had a tangy, tangy citrus bowl with tofu. It was so good. You know, tofu's hit or miss. This got the texture right. It was marinated for long enough. It was really tasty. I also had a mushroom tomato goat cheese cavatappi. That's right, a cavatappi. Delicious. These are not the microwave meals you're used to from the grocery store or frozen food aisle. These are legitimately good. So head to factormeals.com slash deadpilots50 and use code deadpilots50 to get 50% off. That's code DEADPILOTS50 at factormeals.com slash deadpilots50 
and you will get 50% off. The Greatest Generation, Maximum Fun's irreverent, filthy mouth Star Trek podcast is a big deal. How big? It's the only Star Trek podcast big enough to have a live show tour, and we are inviting all Star Trek fans and Max Funsters everywhere. We're calling it the Share Your Embarrassment Tour, and we're going to celebrate and roast Star Trek V. That's the one where they kill God. We're going to be in a bunch of cities, and GreatestGenTour.com has all the info and ticket links. That's GreatestGenTour.com for dates and ticketing info for the Share Your Embarrassment Tour. Come share your embarrassment with us. And grow stronger from the sharing. You just mentioned that you had plotted out the season of trial. Like, in how much detail? Loosely. They like they wanted to know. They're like, if we buy this, like, what is another season of this? You know, so we had to go that far. You know, even like season two, season three, like this are these are. So we have some very loose like ideas of like kind of a larger story that we're telling. But then I think <laughs> it's funny we could like. It's. It feels like a big spoiler to say. Yeah, I was like, no who, are you, who are you? What are you I blowing think, here? Yeah, I think spoil it. I, you know, I just tell us who who was the killer. Chad was going to be the killer. The um, son. The yeah. Son. And um, Bradley was going to go to prison for him, and that was like going to be our end of season one, and then our season two would be Bradley surviving prison. <laughs> which i i love that i don't know uh, but uh yeah I, I, we hadn't really figured out again like it's kind of weird they give you this like again the league minimum and then they're like uh they're essentially asking you a little bit when they're like <laughs> what else happens in the season is like write an entire mystery in your head for us that you can like. And and so I'm not sure if we like had worked out what the like motivation is for uh, Bradley's son to have killed the business manager. Do you know, (laughs) Rob, do you remember like why he would have done that? That might've been like the (laughs) tension. Right. Right. (laughs) It could have been the tomorrow guys problem, like in our head. Like, Yeah. yeah. It, that exercise always does seem more like what can we make sound like something to these execs and we'll actually figure it out if the opportunity arises. I, I think so often they just want to see that you're confident in something. And because in our eyes, we telegraph nothing but terror. Um, it has been a real <laughs> impediment, but they just want to know that, you know, you know, there are little Easter eggs in the pilot, though. Easter eggs, like anybody would collect them. Like there are, like what's the proper, like an egg rotting in the forest all by itself <laughs> to never be collected. Oh, like uh, one of those hundred year eggs that you they have at like Chinese restaurants. There's a gooey egg. Yeah, there's a okay. gooey egg in there where Chet comes in through the back gate. Uh, I think when you meet him. And that's how the killer got in. Um, so there is like a little bit of a like nod that he could have been the guy, but it's done with such sophistication. <laughs> yeah. Fucking Tinker Taylor soldier spy shit over here. It's incredible. <laughs> but it does it does sound like the kind of thing that might instill confidence in a buyer when you say, "Did you catch that he comes in the back?" Because that's gonna that feels like you really got it plotted out right listen i i don't think we can emphasize this enough we both paid for mfas in screenwriting (laughs) (laughs) um so tell me a bit about getting the only murders in the building job and what you know what is that like for writing for like two of the funniest people ever I recommend it. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it was, I mean, those guys have been um, our heroes, my heroes for my whole life. I mean, I remember being a 
you know, 13 or 14, having one of those, um, like the first like portable shitty DVD players where the screen was this big and forcing my uh, high school girlfriend to watch the jerk, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I remember I saw Steve and Marty do their live show at the Greek in like 2019 and thinking, God, uh, you know, and that show is just delightful. It's on Netflix, pretty much the same version they tour with. And, you know, it's just timeless jokes, you know, them just like roasting each other and how can you not love them? And just thinking, boy, it would just be a dream to do anything. And then, you know, we like read on deadline that, you know, they sold a show, you know, it's a mystery. And we're just like, we would do anything to meet on. We love them. We would do anything uh, to meet on this show. And Dan Fogelman's company was producing it. This is one of those things of like, what are general meetings for? You know, we had had a general on one of Dan's shows called Gallivant in like 2014, 2015 with his exec, Jess Rosenthal, who remembered us apparently somehow five years later or whatever. And we met on that with, uh, so we met with John Hoffman. I had my Steve Martin poster prominently positioned in the frame, you know, and I think it was the most energetic we've ever attempted to be in a meeting, right? (laughs) I mean, I know it's trouble imagining that now, but like, (laughs) Um, yeah, we were just hyped up for it. And like, I don't know, it crossed so many like kind of paths for us. A lot of the times, like you're going out for those shows and it's like, do you have anything to say about wrestling? And you're like, well, I, I guess I used to watch it or something. And you kind of got to like really dig, but like, I'm from New York. Like I did all this work in doing true crime and I love those guys and you know, it just seemed like, well, this, this should work. Like this is, this is something that I can speak about, you know, authoritatively. Was there a pilot to watch or a script to read, or was it not even, there was, was a, a script. Concept? There was a script. There was a script and Stephen Marty, it was going to be Stephen Marty. There wasn't Selena. The idea was that it was going to be somebody of her generation, you know, but not, she wasn't in it yet. And um and you know there were a bunch of clues in the pilot i don't think the mystery was you know totally figured out by any means and you know the room was all on zoom uh it was the beginning of the pandemic and it was another one of these things where it was it was amazing and fun and we you know we wrote it and even when they shot it which was also during covid i remember being like i mean the truth is you just never know i don't anyway like you just never know what the reception is going to be. And I think we were all blown away um, by how much people enjoyed it. Were Steve and Marty in those Zooms? They were in a few with us. Yeah. Um, You know, and it was always like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Were you able to pitch anything when they're all? No, everybody was just like quietly, like taking like screen captures. Yes, definitely. Everyone would, you you could just see like the whatever the three buttons are that you hit. Yeah, that was pretty wild. You could ask them quite like they came in, I think, to try to normalize it, you know, and you could ask them questions. This was especially very early on. We were asking them questions about their friendship. I remember because we were trying to dial in on the relationship with the characters and to see what we could draw on, you know? Um, But yeah, it was wild. I remember the first time meeting them in person was just after the first season, I think had come out if I'm remembering it right. And it was like, you know, obviously very successful. And we had a small gathering uh, at our showrunners place and we somebody made sure there was a banjo there and sure enough you know steve martin is playing the banjo and we're talking and you can kind of like and they start sort of doing their show in front of you you know like steve martin started telling a story uh that sort of petered out and marty said like you know steve that was like watching the movie the father but really fast and and i remember like um oh steve said something about how the original cut of planes trains and automobiles was uh like three hours long and mateo very quietly said what forms of transportation did they cut out (laughs) (laughs) he did not hear that one no i did though (laughs) just for me (laughs) um 
It was crazy though. I think they like kind of just sense that everybody's like, like <laughs> so pleased when they, when they do this kind of shot soft shoe for us, you know, like uh, that they just like, there was no like hesitation or like neurosis about it. It was like, is there a banjo in the house? You know, <laughs> right. Oops. Well, someone brought a banjo, you know? I mean, it's just the rarest combination of being somewhat sort of gentle and, but then, but also actually really funny and and that hardly ever gets nailed you know just not mean not like edgy but still like laugh out loud funny like you know not many people can you know, I don't know who else can do what those those two can do were you in those rooms was a lot of it like focused on plotting and and the mystery or um oh so much of it i think it's just because we're like i mean i'll speak for ourselves here we're like little peanut headed like joke writers like we don't i mean aside from this like we've never tried to write a mystery really and it's just like it's it's a whole art that like we grew to have like a lot of respect for i think um just like how you go about constructing one and what are the like tools and what are the rules and this and that. It's like writing comedy in that, like, it's really something you could spend your whole life kind of uh, like honing as a craft. So like we had to spend, I think, extra time on it because we were, uh, there was a lot of comedy writers and um, you know, it was, it was a, it was a new experience for a lot of us. I mean, just like thinking about it a lot we a lot of the stuff we did for trial like we found out like we were doing in the show for the first season like there were a lot of clues that were set up in the pilot that were just like they were like chet using the gate or something it was like it was actually like well this will work out in some way and <laughs> figure it out along the way but i'm not exactly sure what the moves are and now i think like now that we've been through it a few seasons i think we like know enough to have the ending in mind when we start something before like going ahead and, and and putting it in i mean i think we got lucky in that everything maybe not lucky but like it was fortunate that we managed to like kind of like weave um get to the right answer eventually with all of those little like kind of clue drops and stuff you know there's also this sort of inherent challenge that I, I can never really get my head around, which is that you, the only thing, you know, when you start writing is that it has to be 10 episodes, you know? So you're, you're pre dictating the amount of mystery that you need to have, but you can't know how much mystery you have until you write the whole mystery. And then you hope it's 10 episodes worth, you know, it would, it's like if Chinatown had to be, you know, two and a half hours and they just, you know what I mean? Like, that usually you let the story dictate the length, but this was kind of the reverse. Um, and so you can't, you're constantly redeveloping and being like, and cause you don't want to be treading water, you know, especially when people are watching, you know, wanting to binge it or whatever, although we, we come out week to week. So they, they get even more impatient sometimes. Did they bring on for any of, you know, second or third season, someone with more of a, mystery background or is the staff still just been pretty much a bunch of comedy writers all throughout we had um i mean we had playwrights we had uh, a, a guy who's a really talented novelist um mm -hmm. hmm? your book oh no. yeah my book uh how to write a darn good mystery which game changer like literally <laughs> that book a lot of the stuff in season one was like you know Red herring, uh, you know, all these, I mean, we knew what a red herring was. We have MFAs, um, <laughs> but uh, a lot of that stuff, like the mystery beats of like, what is the off-screen action? What are, what's the villain doing when he's not being hunted, you know, and that kind of thing. I, I remember like a big moment was uh, um, having Amy Ryan, you know, we knew she was the killer and they're like, okay, how do you deflect attention from her? So the idea that she would be stabbed in the first season 
um, was felt like, oh, okay, that that helps with some things, you know. And I can't remember what movie we stole that from, but um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the good ones. Uh, and how have your lives changed since the Emmy nomination? I've gotten fatter, I think. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the Emmy. I don't think those are possible. <laughs> I haven't investigated. I should talk about it in therapy or something and figure out if weight weight gain and acclaim are somehow psychically related for me. But um, I don't know. What, what has happened that is great to us or bad? Has anything bad happened or neutral, Rob? Just a big hit on that hedonic treadmill, you know? I mean, did Emmys, did they, were they a life-changing thing, the Emmy nominations? Uh, yeah, because Hulu sent us those like, uh, or twentieth those um, those sh- salt shot glasses and a bottle of like really nice tequila, and I never knew that they made shot glasses out of salt, like pure salt, right? Um, which was, ah, uh, like if you could <laughs> just drink tequila out of the sea, that's exactly what it would taste like. It was fantastic. So that was specifically for the. A congratulations gift for the nomination. Not that yes, didn't yes. go to the whole staff. That was just for. Oh, we don't know that. We don't know that it didn't go to everybody, right? No, no, no. I don't think we did. <laughs> I don't think we do. It's just you know. I mean, in being somewhat serious, it's just one of those things that writers just think. If I could get, I mean, that's for an Emmy. I think it's good to know. You know as soon as you can that that kind of thing is never going to be the thing that you know brings inner peace you know (laughs) satisfaction i mean it's look it's it's very cool it's an it's like a thrill to work on the show with these guys and and john is just like just about the loveliest person you can imagine um you know i i mean there's a strike going on that that feels like the more pressing existential thing all these issues and i think at the end of the day there's there's a a recognition that like look at all the shows at least for me you know look at all the shows that have been nominated for emmys over the years and the shows that used to sweep the emmys and eventually those shows go away and other shows come and you know like life is so long um so it's like you you celebrate this moment um and then try to remember what's important, which is not getting COVID from your writing partner. <laughs> That's I, my feeling. The the opposite track, which is like, I didn't like ever, none of the shows that I loved like were up for Emmys or whatever. It's not like the reason like I wanted to, you know, write in the first place. It just, it felt like kind of off to the side, but then kind of as I've started working here and like, got a grip and become part of the like larger TV writing community, you kind of realize, oh, these are all like people who are doing the same thing as you are and they like the show. And I think that's like really sweet. It's nice to hear that. Like that's what's important, not the like right. uh, the statue that we're definitely going to win. And <laughs> I, I think there's this other thing too, I was I will say that makes it nice, which is that, you know, Silicon Valley, we got on in 2013. We were very lucky to get on only two years after finishing grad school to get the show. And between that and when we got on Only Murders, which was seven years later, um, we, you know, we bounced around from show to show, which is generally how careers go. Um, either we, either the show was canceled or they changed the staff. You know, we never really, and we had some great times and and have a lot of friends, but we never really like found a home. You know. And the idea that you would last on a show and that it would be a, a show people enjoyed and that you felt like your voice mattered on that show has been the most satisfying part of this, you know? That is very wise. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Just there's nothing better than Andrew, come on. Yeah, I mean, being able to stay and come back, have a job to come back to and, you know, uh, and especially on a show that you know people were you know watching and liking it it's it's the best do you so when the strike ends do you guys know what the status is 
Well, I don't think we have like any kind of official like news or anything. I assume I, you know, it feels like it would come back to me. I mean, all we have is guesses, but you know, in our long career of going to and not going back to shows, it feels like this show is going to continue yeah. um, for as long as these guys want to do it, you know? Um, so. I would hope so. I hope it would not fall victim to the general cancel everything after three seasons streaming nonsense, you know? Um, but I think maybe the fact of the people involved kind of helps to break that curse. I hope so. Um, I'm so glad we got to read this. Really made me laugh. Uh, it's great getting to talk to you guys and congrats again on the absolutely life-changing. <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you. The read was, it was really, you know, great because it's, you write so much stuff that, I mean, we've all, all written many pilots. I think that you write it, you, it's, it's like you fully imagine what your life will be like once it gets made and, and everybody loves it then it dies and you're at your absolute low and you kind of in this, well, what would have happened or whatever. So to be able to hear it and, you know, share it with like the people who care so much about us that they came out on a Sunday at noon. It was um, hot at that theater. Yeah, it, it was, was toasty. It was, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, especially on the stage, you know, um, but. Uh, you didn't show it. Okay, we were looking okay. cool as a Q-cup there. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, good luck. Hope the strike ends soon and you guys get back. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Really hope you enjoyed that. Thank you to Mateo and Rob. We'll be back with another great Dead Pilot next month. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-producer Ben Blacker and our associate producer Noah Findling. It is edited and mixed by Jordan Katz. If you like this show, come on, leave us a review, tell a friend. You can follow us on social media to find out all the latest. We should have some live shows coming up, so you want to follow us. Uh, Those tickets tend to go fast. We're still on Twitter or whatever the hell we're supposed to call it, uh, at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram at Dead Pilot Society. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the picket lines. Maximum Fun a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows supported directly by you.